How's that? Can you hear me okay? Back there? Lovely. Well, good morning. And <clears throat> welcome to the next part of our series on the parables of Jesus. So much of um, Jesus' teaching was delivered in this way. Uh, there are broadly speaking, I guess, 37 different pieces of teaching that people would identify as parables. That's, that's a lot. Uh, this series hasn't covered by all means all 37. Uh, we've been picked out some very uh, choice ones. Uh, interestingly, most are in Matthew. If you look in your Bible, most of the parables are in Matthew. Uh, John doesn't have any of them which in itself is interesting. And there's a handful in Mark and Luke. Interestingly, Mark and Luke have a few parables that aren't in Matthew's Gospel. Um, so they're broadly spread throughout the, what we call the synoptic Gospels. Simple stories that people could understand and identify with. Uh, stories that involved everyday situations. Uh, farmers, fishermen, workers, fathers, sons they spoke to the ordinary people well this morning we're in matthew's gospel as i said where most of the parables are recorded so can i ask you to turn with me to matthew chapter 21 or you can listen as, as i read it uh, and we're just going to read a couple of verses from matthew 21 starting at verse 28. this is i should also say one of the what we call the parables of the kingdom uh, it helps us to understand how God relates to us, what he expects of us, if we like. And when we talk about the, the kingdom of God, we don't just mean, hey, this is what heaven's like. This is what it's going to be when we, when we stand before God in heaven, although there is an element of that. But it talks primarily about how we live our lives here on earth, how we interact with one another, how we, how we live out this Christian life. So these are very practical pieces of teaching for each of us. So starting then in Matthew 21 and verse 28. What do you think? asks Jesus. A man has two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And the man went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not. Which of the two did the father's will? The first, they said. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. Father, just pray that you bless these words to us now. Uh, help us to understand the truths uh, behind them and speak to us, I pray. If you want a, a modern translation, there's many modern translations of the Bible, but if we were to uh, put this parable into even more modern terms, those of you who are parents, uh, how many of us, us have said to our children, go and tidy your room? Which son or daughter says, of course I will, mum or dad. And when we investigate a few moments later, the room is unchanged. We don't often find 
the son or daughter that when told to, hey, put the PlayStation down and tidy your room, we don't seem to get a response, but when we come back a few moments later, the, the room is immaculate, the clothes are folded and put away. And if Jesus were to ask the parable of us in, in those terms and say, which son did their parents will? Well, we wouldn't, like the crowd here, have any difficulty in answering. It's a simple story. But there are some interesting paradoxes in the parables. On the one hand, they contain simple truths. Yet on the other hand, they're very particular and precise in their teaching. They cut right to the heart uh, of people's ideas. There's a paradox too in the responses to the parables. In many instances, the people are struck and amazed by the clarity and the depth of the teaching and resolve to follow Jesus even more. In other instances, particularly uh, the religious authorities, they're incensed and offended, uh, again impacted by these words and, and want to even more pursue Jesus and bring him to trial. Uh, take verse 23, for example, just a few verses before the passage I read. It says there, and when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And so often Jesus's answer to such aggressive questioning is actually to tell a simple parable, to illustrate and to answer with a simple truth that highlights the errors or the hypocrisy of his question, questioners. And one thing that we can be sure is that no one went away from hearing the parables with the thought, well, that was a nice story. That was a clever illustration. I'll remember that one. So often uh, people were affected for good or for ill, but they were changed. But doesn't that strike to the very heart of a problem with us as we read the parables? Doesn't their very familiarity uh, with, with them often make us do just that, dismiss them as nice stories, clever illustrations, Aesop's fables for Christians? These things are meant to impact us. And I trust that as we look at this parable this morning, this will impact us. I trust my words will impact us. Uh, a famous description of the role of a preacher that I like very much that defines what we do, what we should do, is this. It says it has two objectives. One is to comfort those who are uncomfortable. And two, to make uncomfortable those who are comfortable. On the one hand, the words we bring from the front here absolutely must bring comfort to those that are suffering, those that are facing difficulties, hard circumstances. We must bring words of comfort and encouragement. But at the same time, we have to sometimes unsettle people to rouse them out of their comfortable seats. I don't know how comfortable your seats are, but I want to rouse a few of you this morning. I want these words to impact us, me, us as a church. This parable will, I trust, cause us to examine our lives. Well, let's turn to the parable itself then, a comparatively simple story that prompts uh, a question to which there was that obvious answer, you know, which son fulfilled the father's will? Two sons both asked by their father to go and work in the vineyard. One says no, and then later goes. 
the other says yes and does go. And the, simple, and the simple question is, which one did the father's will? The answer is obvious. It is that first son. In fact, the answer is so obvious that when the crowd responds, Jesus doesn't even say, hey, you're right. He just moves on with the parable because the answer is just so obvious. The illustration is clear. The father represents God. The two sons, their different responses represent us both men and women. Ladies, you are described as sons in scripture. Guys, we're described as brides. We've both got to just live with that and move on. It's not a gender issue. So this includes all of us. Uh, the parable applies to us. The vineyard is the world, or more precisely, our calling, our ministry, just our day-to-day -day witness and the example that we set of what it means to be a Christian. Will we do what is asked of us? One son said the wrong thing. He said no, but later did the right thing. He went and did what he should have done. The other said the right thing. He said yes, but did the wrong thing and didn't lead the life expected of him. We have a saying in English. I'm not sure if it carries the, the same strength in other languages or if you just have to just translate the words. Um, but it's quite a strong saying in English. We could actually sum up this parable in five words. Actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. That's ten words, but I repeated it twice, if you're counting. <coughs> and whilst the first son didn't honour his father as he should have done when first asked to go and work, he did at least later change his mind and do what he'd been asked to do. The crowd have no problem in agreeing that it was this first son that did his father's will. So what do I mean when I said earlier that this parable should make us uncomfortable? It all seems pretty straightforward so far. Well, simply this, if we agree that the first son was the one who did the Father's will, if we've agreed that actions speak louder than words, can I suggest that we as a church face the very real danger in these days of actually acting like the second son, of being a son that says the right thing, but doesn't actually back them up with actions? Now let me see if I can justify that statement for you. Let me ask you a question. What is the single most pressing problem facing the church in these days? That's a great question for a Sunday morning, isn't it? What is the single most pressing problem facing the church in these days? And by the church, I mean churches in the West, churches like us. If we want to give a label to that, we might say, uh, charismatic evangelicals, but if those labels don't mean anything, you know, churches like us, churches like this, Christians like us, what's the biggest problem facing us today? You might say it's the whole debate over gender issues. How does the church speak into the LBGTQ debate and bring a godly perspective to that? You might say it's the whole issue of equality and diversity. How does the church respond to, does the church need to respond to the Black Lives Matter debate or the woke debate? Those are both big issues that face the church and we do need to speak into those issues. But I would suggest that they're not the biggest issues that the, first, the church faces. 
Let me ask you another question. What's the most, single most quoted reason that non-Christians give for not wanting to join a church or for Christians give for leaving the church? Nothing to do with the rain, by the way. What's the single most reason that the Christians give for leaving the church or non-Christians give for not wanting to join a church? Because the answer to that question should be, I guess, the biggest problem facing the church at the moment. And you see, when you look at various surveys and when you look at various studies that have been done that ask that question, the answer isn't that the church hasn't got a robust theology over gender issues. It isn't that the church isn't speaking into the equality and diversity issues. They will appear on the list, but they're not the biggest single reason that people give. To put it simply, it boils down to this. It boils down to a statement that I read in, again, one study that I was reading. Quite simply, too many Christians doing unchristian things. Too many Christians doing unchristian things. That's from a 2016 survey, albeit from US churches. Another study that I was reading that was asking the question, why do millennials leave the church? Millennials uh, are uh, people born between 1980 and 1995. So what would now be kind of young adults between 25 and 40. A key demo, well, all demographics are key demographics. We want to balance church, but 25 to 40 year olds, young adults, people with young children, key core demographic in the church, leaving the churches, not joining churches. Why do they, what do they give as the reason for that? And just a couple of quotes from that study that I was reading that says this, talking about authenticity. Authenticity was by far one of the most heavily weighted discussion topics in our focus groups. Authenticity was defined as sincerity, genuineness, transparency, or in terms of the words spoken, or, or in terms that the words spoken must match the actions done when determining if a religious or non-religious institution or community is authentic. The words and the actions have to match up if we're going to be authentic. Authenticity was defined as one of the key topics or key reasons for millennials' involvement in a church or their lack of involvement in the church. Again, another quote, churches have become more focused on the presentation of their services rather than the substance of what they're preaching. And rather than millennials coming in flocks back to the church, they are avoiding it like the plague due to the appearance that it lacks sincerity and authenticity. Now, if you want to sum up all of that and cut to the chase, it basically says what we do needs to match up with what we say. And I would suggest this morning, as again, and I stress this, I want to just prod gently and make a few of us just maybe a little bit uncomfortable. I want to suggest that we are in danger of being second sons because we do not back up our words with actions. In fact, we're in danger of putting words before actions. Now, let me get very specific here because I do want to talk into a particular situation. If we're honest, every one of us would acknowledge that our lives and actions do not always match up to the standards that we expect. That, that's, that's clear. We all know we fall far short 
of the standards that God expects. And I don't really want to go down that avenue this morning. Uh, if, if as I speak, as, as we go through this morning, if you're aware of circumstances in your life or actions or inactions that need to change and you, know, you want some support and some prayer for that, then as, as I guess we open up a bit more, there'll be opportunity to pray this morning. If God is just, again, highlighting something in your life that needs to change. But, but actually want to specifically home in on a particular area of our corporate church life that I think is important. And this is how we bring new believers into the faith. We need to be careful that we don't give birth to second sons who simply say the right thing, but whose actions do not match up to those words. Who don't live a life that meets the standard of the words. As charismatic evangelicals, to put a label on us, we quite rightly, and hear what I'm saying, we quite rightly stress the importance of the fact that we are saved through faith alone. Those great truths of the Reformation, those great verses of Paul's from Ephesians that, that underline, I guess, our whole theology. For, you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I heard Steve's lips moving there as he said it under his breath. He's not the only one. We know those verses by heart, don't we? Because they're at the core of our very being. We're not saved by our works or our actions, but by our simple trust and faith in Jesus. But how often when we bring people to Jesus, do we end it there? afraid to talk about the fact that this salvation, this Christian life involves a changed life as well, involved, involves changed actions. How about some of the passages in James? What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food and one of you says, hey, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the astute among you, well, you don't have to be terribly astute to work it out, there's a bit of a paradox there, isn't it? We're saved by faith alone, by nothing else. We're not saved by our works, but James says, works without faith, or faith without works is dead. You know Martin Luther, the great uh, champion of the Reformation, I guess he was a pretty clever kind of guy to kind of bring some whole new teaching into the church. He didn't like James, not as a guy. I'm pretty sure he would have got on with the Apostle Fine, but he didn't like the book of James. Because Luther's teaching was we're saved by faith. That was the central tenet of the Reformation. And uh, one of the things that Luther did, and many things with his life, was he translated the Bible into German for the first time. And so he's translated the Bible into German, and he's got no problem with Ephesians that says, you know, we're saved by grace alone. And he gets to James that says, you know, faith without works is dead. And uh, he had a bit of a problem, and actually Luther didn't put James in his first German translation. He struggled with it so much. 
James, he didn't have a great love for Revelation either. I'm not sure if he excluded that one as well, but certainly um, James didn't make it into the first German translation of the Bible. And if Luther struggled with it, then, then we can put our hands up and say, hey, this is a toughie for us. Is it faith? Is it works? Is it both? Well, I think it has to be a little bit of both. We can't just go around and say, hey, yeah, I believe, I'm a Christian. We can't bring people into the faith and say to them, pray this prayer, accept Jesus into your life. And this is all good stuff. But not at the same time say, hey, but your life needs to change. The actions that you do, the works that you do need to reflect, support, be in line with those words you've said, those prayers that you've prayed. Because if it's not, then we're not authentic. If we're not authentic, that's the one thing that turns people off of the church or makes people actually in the church to question, do they want to stay? And that's why I say this is a challenge. This should make us uncomfortable. This should make us look at our lives. And Jesus goes on and says and praises the tax collectors and the prostitutes the very least of society, because they came up from a position of doing undeniably wrong, but changed, but changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 gives a whole list of people who, he says, if their lives remain unchanged, will not inherit the kingdom. And yet in verse 11, Jesus says, and some of these were you, but, but, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Not because of the words spoken, or not only because of the words spoken, but because of life's changed. It's a challenge for us. It's, it's a challenge for me as I thought about this word, as I thought about what I wanted to bring. Because so much at the heart of what we do, what we say, what we believe, what we are, is this truth that we are saved by faith alone. And that is true. Please don't hear anything that I'm not saying. I'm not saying that isn't true. That is true. But it's so easy when we bring people into the kingdom, when we give birth to sons and daughters, to step back just a little bit from challenging their lifestyle through fear of turning them off. So, hey, this in your, this in your area in your life needs to change. Have you thought about this? And again, none of us are perfect. All of us are on a journey. All of us are on a journey. But we need to look at our lives, lest we be those sons that say, of course I'll work in the vineyard. Of course I'll tidy my room. But the room remains a mess. So what can I say in summing up this passage? Let us realise that our actions are under scrutiny. What we do is under scrutiny as much as what we say. If we say one thing and do something else, we not only displease our Father and become the very people Jesus is highlighting in this parable, but we become a stumbling block for those looking in from the outside and a source of confusion and dissatisfaction for those who are wrestling with faith issues inside the church. The good news is that ultimately this is a simple parable. They're all simple with a simple ask. Jesus asks us simply to back up our words with a life that reinforces those words. Ultimately, we need both. And again, I want to stress that I'm not preaching a gospel of good works 
our salvation is not determined by what we do. We're not under condemnation. We all fail in some way. We all fail in some way. The glorious truth of the gospel is no matter how far we fall, there is forgiveness. We can come back to our heavenly father. He is a good son. He's a good daughter. He said the wrong things, but he did the right thing at the end of the day. So we cannot ignore our actions. Let me again, as I, I close, modify my earlier statement just a little bit. It's not that actions speak louder than words, for our prayers and our words of faith are important, but rather actions reinforce those words. And that's what we need. As we bring new believers into the kingdom, this must be the first lesson that they learn. We need to remember this for ourselves, but we need to remember that for those that we walk alongside and encourage and bring into the faith. It's not just the elders, it's not just Steve that brings new people into the church. We're all involved in that chain of salvation. And we need to have the courage as we do that to look at people's lives and say, hey, your life needs to change as well. Our lives need to change as well. I, I want to pray two very simple prayers. I don't know if Mark and Julie, if I could put you on the spot, if you could come up and we could just, uh, just have, uh, have some quiet uh, music just as, I, just as I close, just as I pray a couple of prayers here. Because I do want to pray two things. I do want to reach out in two ways in response to this word. Firstly, and really importantly, I don't want anyone this morning to feel condemned. I don't want anybody to look at their life and say, hey, I've, I'm not good enough, because that's not the truth of the gospel. If there are things in your life that, that you know need to change, either things that you're doing that you need to stop or things that you're not doing that you need to start, then don't feel condemned about that. We're not under condemnation. But it is God speaking to us. It is God pointing that finger, just saying, hey, we can just correct your course just a little bit. Just move in this way. Just move in that way. So there's no condemnation. And please, if anybody is feeling that, let's, let's pray for that. Let's deal with that. Uh, let's acknowledge that. If you want help in talking through situations that you're facing in your life that you know you want to change, then we can pray for one another. Maybe there's an opportunity to do that at the end here as we close. I also want to pray... Um, for those same actions or inactions, that they'd be a challenge to us, that they would drive us to our Heavenly Father. Um, and I want to pray also, again, I said this and I'll say it again, as we, as we are involved in bringing people into the kingdom, as we talk to our friends and family, as we see them moving closer to God, let's, jo let's not just make that a journey of, hey, say the right things. Just say this prayer and then nothing else needs to change. No, lives do need to change. We need to change. Father, thank you for this word. I just pray that again you would stir us to look afresh at our lives, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, to think about perhaps the way the people around us, our friends and family, the people that we're trying to influence, but see us through their eyes. Do they see a life where words and actions are aligned or do they see a mismatch there that causes confusion? Lord, help us to be, well, Lord, I guess we need a third son in this story, don't we? A third daughter 
the one that both said yes at the first and then went and did what he was asked to do. But Lord, we're settled for first sons. We're settled for first sons who, who may at first get it wrong, but at least get it right as they think more on their actions and on their words. So Father, bless us this morning, bless us this week. Encourage us, free us from any condemnation, any feeling that we failed, that we fall short of you. Just cause that to stir us into a greater, closer walk with you. Amen. I think we're going to sing something. Um, again, please, I don't know how quite we're going to close, but please take opportunity to encourage one another and pray with one another and uh, just ask for help if you want help or prayer. Amen.